Well, once again, thank you for being with us this morning in the School of the Word. We're in a series that will take us several weeks, and we're systematically studying the person of God. Now, that means we're just going to be able to tiptoe through various aspects of the person of God. And we're using as one of the references Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book. I don't have it with me, but somebody, Dane, would you hold that up? This is Dane St. John, so hold it up. That's the book we're currently using. Isn't that it? Yeah, that's the one we're currently using. The material that we're beginning to talk about this morning can be found in chapters 11 through 13. Now, you're going to find out that what we're doing in here is not extensive, as extensive as Wayne Grudem is, because if we did that, we would be here for months and months and months, and we don't believe that's the scope of what God wants us to do. What we're doing is looking at the person of God in a very general way, studying the major aspects of who God is. Why? Because to know God is to have life. To understand him is to understand who we are in Christ. So thank you so much for doing that. Fathers, we begin this morning. What an impossible task that we who are finite, that we who are weak, frail, failing people have been given the most incredible opportunity and responsibility for sharing who you are as you have declared yourself in your word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit's revealing to us who you are. Father, as we teach this morning, as Matt and I teach every Sunday morning, Father, we're not interested in this just being a didactic activity, gaining some information. But Father, we're asking that your spirit will take the information that we speak And transform it into our minds to cause by your spirit, your word, to be renewing us and transforming us and conforming us to the image of your son. Father, I pray that for this class, for those who listen here uh, online, however, that every Sunday as we study the word of God, we will be experiencing the God of the Word. Cause us to know you, Father, to know you so much more deeply than we've ever known you before. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin this morning, it's important just to reiterate that what we're talking about in here is not our opinion or our thoughts What we're talking about in here is the revealed revelation of the person of God as he gives us understanding and revelation of himself in his word 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So everything in here, as everything that we do as a church, should be and hopefully is taken from the Word of God, is revealed to us as God has revealed himself to us in his Word. So this morning we're going to talk about, in a very general way, the attributes of God. So what we're going to do, we're going to collect into one class what Grudem talks about in a lot of in a lot of pages, but then we'll get into some of the individual attributes. This morning we'll talk about one, and then next week we'll talk about, for the next couple of weeks or so, we'll talk about various other attributes. And I don't know, I think I could be correct in this, I'm not sure, but I would say, because God is infinite, I would say that his attributes are infinite. Would you agree with that? I don't think there's anything not infinite in God. And so we're not going to be studying every attribute of God because, first of all, we only know a handful. And those ha that handful, we're just going to be taking some of the, what we are hoping are the more significant ones. And even with that, I hesitate to say that because there is no significant attribute that is more significant than the others. So let me correct myself right away. So when we talk about the attributes of God, we're referring to those collective essential qualities. Now, I don't know what's in your notes. I don't know what's emphasized there or whatever. But I want us to see this. Very important. When we talk about the attributes of God, whatever attribute it is, it doesn't matter. When we talk about the attributes of God, we are talking about the collective. Do you know what I mean by that? All of them. We're talking about the collective essential qualities of God's nature. Those qualities that define and describe who God is in himself. These attributes are those qualities that comprise God, that describe God, that define the very nature and the very character of the being of, the being of God. So when we say that, we're talking about that attributes and God are one and the same. It isn't that God is this way, and this is, this is who God is right here. And then there's some attributes over here that are attached to him. Attributes are not attached to God. Attributes are those qualities. How do you say this with words when we're talking about that which is infinite? You see us struggling with that. And so the attributes of God and the person or the being of God are one and the same. Now, I emphasize that because what happens is this. We look at an attribute, and I always go beyond my notes, and hopefully I'll finish today. If I don't, I'm going to be in trouble with Matt. We typically do this. We take an attribute. So what would you think would be the answer of most believers if I were to ask you, what is the most important attribute of God that we have? Say it again. Love. I, I can hear you. Raise your voice. Tell me what. Somebody said only love. That's holiness. You said that, Mike. What else? Mercy. 
Well, father isn't an attribute. It's, but whatever. Grace? Mm, okay. Some of this I wouldn't call attribute, but that's okay. What about sovereignty? What about power? Now, what's wrong with my question? The whole question is wrong. The whole question misses the point, right? If I were to ask you, what is the most important attribute, what should your answer be? All of them together, collectively, comprehensively, immediately. All of them, collectively, comprehensively, and immediately are the most. Why do I emphasize this? Because it is too easy and unfortunately lazy teaching, loose language, or whatever we want to say, that things are happening in our lives and we begin to think differently about who God is, therefore what he does, because what he does is the outworking of who he is. And we begin to categorize attributes as this is more important than that. Well, the sovereignty of God, whatever. What about the love of God? So every single attribute. May I repeat that? Every single attribute. May I say it one more time? Every single attribute. Yes, you may take notes if you don't have this in your notes. If I was in an English class that I used to be in, I said, this is on final exam. You'd ask me, what did you just say, teacher? Every single attribute is contained within every other attribute. You see, because we're not talking about a list of things. We're talking about God himself. Who has disclosed himself, revealed himself by allowing us to in some small way see and understand and experience who he is through a study of his attributes. So I want us to take the understanding of the attributes of God. And see them as a divine tapestry. And even that fails. You see, our words fail us. And to look at the divine tapestry. What aspect of the tapestry is more important than another aspect? If it's a perfect tapestry. If you accentuate one aspect of it over another aspect, you have destroyed its perfection. So it's absolutely acceptable and necessary for us to study the individual attributes that God reveals to us in his word. But the danger is that as we do that, okay, we're going to talk about God's independence or we're going to talk about God's um, sovereignty. We're going to talk about God's love. We begin to think that these are individual aspects of God rather than this is a device or a way of studying the collective being of God. Are you with me on this this morning? Because what I'm wanting to happen, I'm sorry, sorry, I shouldn't say I want. What I believe the Holy Spirit wants to happen is 
that he elevate and clarify this God who he is in himself in a way that we are not stumbling over the individual attributes that we understand and have been given to understand. Because what we often do is, how many of us have done this? We, we play one attribute against another. Come on, anybody ever done that? I'm the only one who's ever done that. My wife has done it, so her hand hopefully is raised. You, you, you see, Warren, haven't you played one attribute against another sometimes? We're talking about something. You say, yeah, but God's grace. Yeah, but God's this. Yeah, but what about that? And we're making the fundamental error of accentuating and elevating one attribute over another where in God that is impossible. Okay? All right. Let me get back to my lectern up here to see where I am. Now, okay. I think I've said this. Every attribute is fully present in every other attribute. Are you seen where I am in my notes? This is going to take more. We're going to miss this key sermon this morning, but that'll have to be. Each attribute is equally essential. Please get this. Because if you don't get the foundation here, you're going to miss so much of what's coming. You got to know your ABCs in order to write a decent sentence, right? Well, maybe not. Each attribute is equally essential. No attribute is independent of any other attribute. So let's start looking at the attributes of God. Now, where do we look? Where do we begin to look at the actual or individual Attributes of God. Where do we begin? In the beginning. Oh, y'all are great. I mean, doesn't it make sense? Herman, doesn't it make sense that in order to look at the attributes of God, <clears throat> we have to begin with where he begins? And where is that? What Bible verse? Genesis 1.1. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Genesis 1.1 is the most fundamentally revelatory and significant verse in the entire Bible. Everything after Genesis 1-1 is contained in and as a result of Genesis 1-1. Why do I do this? Because I don't want us to skip over verses in the Bible that, oh yeah, well, let's get to Abraham. Abraham is in Genesis 1-1. What's the most important verse in the Bible? The cross. The cross is where? In Genesis 1-1. Because if they weren't a Genesis 1-1, there wouldn't be anything else. Now, what does Genesis 1-1 say? What are the first? What is it? In the beginning, God created. That's where we're going to go. In the beginning, God created. In this verse, we are introduced to, I'm going to say it this way and see if you agree with me. Be careful. 
we are introduced to the most amazing and essential attribute of God. Is that correct to say that? No. We are introduced to what may seem to be the most breathtaking, unbelievable revelation of our God that there is. You see, if you're studying the ancient religions, everybody's God came from somewhere, right? Everybody's God was, you know, some kind of way, whatever. But here you come to an ancient Hebrew text written thousands of years ago before there was any concept of infinity, space, eternality. <laughs> Those weren't there. And so when we come to this verse, in the Hebrew it is, Bereshit, bara Elohim. And that might be in your notes. Do you see it in your notes? Did they put that in your notes? Bereshit, bara Elohim. That's the Hebrew of in the beginning God created. So, what are we learning here? Bereshit is the Hebrew term which means the start of something. The beginning of something. That's what that means. I think this may be in your notes. I'm not sure. Now, that's okay. There's nothing shocking about something started. But then the next word comes in. The word B-A-R-A, -A, bara. Now, what's shocking about this word is that it's used very specifically to communicate something that is absolutely in unhumanly possible to, con to, to create in your mind. It's a concept that we can't do it. We can't do it. The word bara means to create. But more than create, because God created something. What's so fantastic about that? How many of you fall out of your chair if I say God created something? <gasps> no. But God created out of nothing. Nothing. Now, Jude, you think of this. Think of it. When there was nothing, not even time. You see, even the word eternal, as referring to God, is technically a misnomer. God is not eternal in the technical sense of who he is in himself. Because before God created, there was no eternal. Are you beginning to get dizzy? God created time, space, and matter. Those three are necessary. He created them. And when God began to create, when God created rather, that's when eternal came in. That's when everlasting came in, into existence. Before that, eternal, the everlasting, etc., are not even in existence. 
I'm going to say it this way, and it's still a wrong way to say it. But it's where we are with our faulty, finite language. There was a time, missed it right there. Why? The word time has to do with that which God has created and does not have to do with the essence of God's attribute. This attribute that we're talking about, and some of you remember this when we've talked about this before, is the word, what? Aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Do you see it in your notes? Aseity. I want you to know that word, the aseity of God. What does aseity mean? It's from two Latin words, if you would. A, meaning from. A, you know, A, A, meaning from. That's not difficult. And then say, S-E. A, say, meaning what? Self. So, A, self, meaning this, that God, God's existence is from himself. Now, how many of you, this is a challenge? Come on. Come on. Before there was anything at all, when there was nothing, God, God is. I caught you. You, you see how we're bound up to trying to put God in a time frame? Most of us thought what? God was. Now, I know he says I was and all that, but he's talking about himself in reference to our experience as created beings. But when we're talking about the essence of God himself, who he is in himself, we don't say God was. We say God is. That's Micah over here. I want to do this slowly. Because you see, this is probably the one attribute, that quality about God among all the others collectively who make God who he is. This is who God is. He is in himself. And of himself. He has never come into existence. He just is. You see, if I describe God as to his essential being. With any other verb except is. Okay, we can go with that, you know. But it misses the essence the profundity, you know what I mean? Profound. Profundity. The unbelievableness of who this God is. Just a couple of simple words. In the beginning, God created. Now, you may never have seen this in that statement. That's why I say Genesis 1-1 is the most important verse in the Bible because it says 
when nothing was, God created everything out of what? Nothing. Now, you know what the scientists say, don't you? What do they call it? What theory is it? The big, then I spit on you. I'm sorry. You have to be careful around me. I spit. That's why some of you sit on the back row, but you see, I can walk back there. I can come all the way back here. I know the camera isn't following me, but I'm, I'm not afraid to do this. I taught school. I'm used to walking around where all the students are. What was I talking about? The Big Bang Theory. Thank you. Now, what is the, the collective wisdom of man's great intellect about the creation? That everything that is began with a big... I mean, you've, heard, you've read enough of this, haven't you? So they push now... We have now, we, humanity, you know, the science, have pushed the creation back. How many billions of years? Hmm? Do, do you know? Six, seven, eight billion years ago, there was a time when everything that is right now was in the kernel or the acorn or the whatever of this little bitty, 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 bitty thing. And this thing went boom. And the creation started. Now, what is the obvious question, Todd? Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Angel, do you know where it came from? If, if something has existed... Can something in the natural order come from nothing? Hmm? Even after a very long period of time, it finally became something. <laughs> so let's get it. In the beginning, what does that mean? Before the creation. In the beginning, before God created anything, God existed. God has uncaused, underived life in himself. Does that make sense to you? Uncaused, underived life in himself. God is complete within himself, completely independent and self-sufficient, needing nothing outside of his own being. God is the cause or creator of time, space, and matter. Now, in Wayne Grudem's theology book, as it is in some theology books, the aseity of God is referred to as what? Have some of you read this already? God's independence. I don't quibble with theologians because I don't have the ability to do so, but the reason I don't use the word independent because it can mean a whole lot of other things. Right? If I say God's independence, what does that mean? Well, he's not dependent on anything. Yeah. Why? Why doesn't God need anything? Because you see, he, having existed, he is. He is totally and completely 
self-sufficient, satisfied in himself. There is nothing. May I repeat that? There is absolutely nothing, not even the smallest little whatever it is now that they've detected that God needs. You see, because remember what the word need means. Need is something that is essential to you in some way, correct? I need a drink of water. A need is not a want, although too often loose language, we use them interchangeably, and that's incorrect. We shouldn't do that. I need a cookie. Well, no, you don't need a cookie, honey child. You just want a cookie. There's a difference, right? There is nothing in God that he needs outside of himself. There is nothing in God that is in the creation that God needs. Nothing. Now, I've heard preachers say this, and okay. God needs you to go out and to share the gospel. God needs your obedience. He needs your money. Jody, do you see how false that is? Do you see how it brings God down to us and causes him to be on the same needy level as we are as his creatures? God don't need nothing. Can we get this? Because as we discuss God himself and as we discuss the ministry of the gospel, etc., in the church, We need to be very careful what we are saying about God's essential character. So, does God need Lloyd? Raise your hand, Lloyd. Everybody doesn't know you. Brother, where are you? This is Lloyd. Does God need Lloyd? God chooses out of the abundance of his own self Less nature. He condescends. Think about it. Think about how much God lowers himself. He condescends to use Lloyd as a minister of the gospel. Does God need to save anyone? Now, that's a trick question, and the answer is yes and no. In the person of God himself, this God who is, he has no needs. So he doesn't want, he doesn't need to create. But he chooses to create out of the abundance of his own personal desire to declare his glory And specifically, the glory of the relationship of these three persons to declare that glory in his people whom he will create. It's a choice of God. Now, so before he creates, he doesn't need to. Ah, but after he creates, he commits himself to do it.
So there is a place in God that we can say, God has to forgive sin in order to be consistent with his eternal purpose. So when we get to Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve sin, what happens? You know, why didn't God just destroy them? Who would have known? Who would have known if God had just destroyed them? Who would have known? Hmm? God would have known. Come on, come on, stay with me. And Al, God knows. But God made a promise. He made a personal commitment to the Son. I'll just give you one verse. Ephesians 1.4. He made a personal commitment to the Son. Ephesians 1.4. Before the foundation of the world. To create a people whom the Son would inherit through his obedience. Right? God making that commitment will honor, will honor that commitment no matter what. So he binds himself to his own commitment, to his own character. So looking in the word of God, once we leave Genesis 1-1, the aseity of God begins to be described in various ways. Now, as we move along in this course, we're going to be talking about the omnis, omnipresent, omni, um, what are the rest of them? I know there are three of them. Omniscient, om, omnipresence, and omnipotent. Thank you. I knew, I knew somewhere out there, out there. What we're going to find out as we look at the attributes of God, and this is why we're emphasizing aseity. Because God is independent of his creation, all of his attributes exist in him and all of his attributes are also independent of his creation which means this that what God does he isn't forced to do by anything or anyone in the creation what he does he does it willingly according to his eternal purpose worked out by his character but we're beginning to see the attributes of God a little differently because we have been seeing them as normal people, too man-centered, too much about us and for us. God's attributes are who he is. It's all about him. And the greatest condescension of all, the greatest condescension begins in Genesis 1-1, culminates in the cross. And is applied in the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Did you get that? Did you get that? The humility of God. Is radically. Expressed. In Genesis 1-1 in the creation. Reaches its culmination in a time frame at the cross. Where at the cross. Everything that God purposes in Genesis 1-1 is achieved by the Son of God. And then the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, all that God has purposed in Genesis 1-1 is now actively fulfilled and being fulfilled upon the earth in the birth of the church.
and then will come to his grand finale, his great crescendo in the perusa. What does the perusa mean? The return of Christ. As described in Revelation 21 and 22. That's one way to look at the Bible. So let's look very quickly at just a couple of verses. Because after Genesis 1-1, God begins to describe his aseity to reference his aseity through various means and various terms and words. Listen. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, you remember Moses is called to Mount Sinai by the burning bush. You remember that? You saw the movie? Oh, okay. Moses is summoned to the person of God, and he sees the bush. And when Moses is there, what happened? Moses, take off your shoes from off your feet, for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. Who are you? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What, what, what name shall I tell the people when I come to them that God has sent me? He tells them, tell them what? I am. I am. See, God references a saity. By saying, I am. Listen to this verse from the Gospel of John. Jesus speaking. Do you remember what I said? God has underived and uncaused life in himself. Do you remember what we said a few minutes ago? Here's what Jesus said in John 5, 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son to have life in himself. He didn't say he gave the Son life. He manifest God the Father, manifest his aseity, his self-life in this man, Jesus, who proclaims to the people, in me, you are experiencing the reality of God who has life in himself. God is everlasting. What does that mean? Eternal, without beginning. When did, when did the word be, begin, uh, everlasting and eternal begin? When God created. Those didn't exist except in the mind of God until he created them. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or before you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Look, there is no concept of this in ancient religion. It doesn't exist. Can a mere man or a bunch of people together come up with a theology that is beyond the capability of humanity to understand and to describe? Can it happen? No. That which man comes up with, right? Anything we come up with, somebody can describe it. You got it? So why is God's aseity and the rest of the word of God, why is it so fantastic? 
Because it's from God. Do we see that? It's from God. So next week we'll start talking about some of the other attributes of God. Thank you so much.